0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 10th episode of Mind Your Body. Woohoo! I'm glad we made it this far. And if you've been listening this entire time, I want to thank you so much for dedicating your time and your interest into this podcast. If you've just kind of found out about this and are beginning to listen, welcome. And thank you so much for giving it a shot leave a review or a rating on whatever platform you're listening on I would greatly appreciate that feel free to send me feedback or comments or suggestions for anything else you'd like to hear you can do that through the Mind Your Body Facebook page just go to Facebook and search Mind Your Body a dance movement therapy perspective and let's talk about today's episode I had an interview with Amber Gray Amber is a dance movement therapist and a practitioner of other body-centered arts and sciences, and has worked for almost 20 years with people who have survived human rights abuses, wars, natural disasters, and has also worked with humanitarian response teams. You can find a brief bio in the episode summary. I hardly think that it describes the huge amount of amazing work that Amber has done around the world. And I'm excited to share this interview with you. I especially love the way that Amber presented very real topics, very important topics for us right now, and how she has challenged these huge global conflicts in the past and still does to this day and advises us on how we can use our own body knowledge and body awareness to do the same. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Hello. Hi. So again, I, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to allow me to interview you and share your story and your work with people listening to this podcast. And um, I wanted to know if you could take us on a brief journey of how you found your specialty in dance movement therapy. Let's
1: see how I found it. It actually is a journey how I found my specialty in dance movement therapy. And I think it's it's a journey that's it's like a river with what is it, multiple tributaries or um, a road with a bunch of different exits and um, entries. But I think it started with always loving to dance and not necessarily in dance classes, but in very freeform ways. I used to just love to dance to wind or rain. So I think there was a sense of the nourishment and the healing and the self-discovery or the self-expression that dances for me you know in a very meaningful and embodied way it's it's not something anybody ever suggested or you know told me to do it's just something that I always did and then I think another aspect My my dad I often quote this but when I had to interview him for a class that I was taking in somatic psychology on early childhood and on my birth he said that I was born dancing and fighting and never stopped and I think we all come in with some sort of you know, blueprint for for who we are that's very flexible and malleable, but mine definitely had to do with human rights and animal rights, probably both. Then personal experiences. I was also drawn to travel. I'm not sure where that came from because I don't come from a family that ever did a lot of travel and and didn't do a lot of traveling as a child, but I dreamed about traveling. And as I started to travel – Peace Corps Guatemala during years when there was a lot of violence, there was still a civil war, things I was exposed to there, people's experiences, you know, they were still fighting in some areas. And then I was in Honduras during the Iran-Contra situation, different things that happened politically. And, you know, I remember some mysterious disappearances and things like that. So just uh, being exposed to and being informed by the things I was exposed to And then as I was, you know, going through international relations is what I got my bachelor's in and then public health, I got a master's in and then I went and studied body work and herbal medicine because I got very interested in natural healing in some of the countries that I lived in. So they all just kind of came together and I wanted, I, I think I just recognized that there was one more piece that I wanted to add to my quote unquote education and career and it had to do with working individually or in groups of people, not, not doing big public health, you know, countrywide plans and things like that, but working more with people. And it was dance therapy. I looked at everything from acupuncture to clinical psychology to medicine and it was dance movement therapy because of, you know, a very, I think my personal relationship to dance and then experiences I had in Rwanda right immediately following the genocide um, where I encountered dance and watched people, rediscover each other after months of separation and not knowing if the other had lived or not I mean I would literally see people come together say oh my gosh you survived and the role of dance and music in a lot of that there was a lot of creative expression so that inspired me you know then once I became a dance movement therapist things have also evolved in terms of how the world has met the, you know, the work. I mean, I've been very intentional and bold about wanting to bring it to places where it doesn't easily exist and finding that there's a lot of receptivity if it's adjusted in, in you know, appropriate to the context. I think I was very naive in the beginning about that, but have made a lot of adjustments.
0: Yeah, that really does sound like a journey.
1: It is. And there's, you know, there's some very, you know, personal experiences along the journey. I mean, there's so many of them, but, you know, Rwanda was one of them you know, a particular village where children, after a very difficult journey where children who didn't, we didn't speak each other's language welcomed me with little tin can shards and made music and danced. And, you know, that, that outreach mm-hmm. using whatever shards of material there was to make some kind of sound was pretty profound.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounded like a natural inclination for them to express themselves, whatever, with whatever resource they could. Yeah. So I was reading a previous interview of yours. It was a transcript of an interview, and you had said that when you began to introduce body and movement into the torture treatment model, your medically focused colleagues were not such believers. So could you tell us what your obstacles were and how and about the specific results that your clients experienced that inspired a shift in your colleagues' perspectives?
1: You know, it's going back quite a while. So, the, yeah, the early roots of torture treatment, and very appropriately so, was medical model. I think a lot of that really arose from the fact that most survivors of with torture don't self identify and they don't go to therapists or to psychologists or to anybody looking for, you know, quote unquote psychotherapy or, or, or mental health treatment. They usually show up in medical clinics or hospitals with physical pain or perceived medical issues that, that, don't go away. And test after test after test, there's no medical cause, there's no medical ideology. So some of my really beloved colleagues who are part of, you know, those who initially recognize there's something going on here. Um, and then would often find physical scars, but often the torturers don't leave physical scars very intentionally. They they intentionally leave emotional and mental and psychological scars, deep imprints on the psyche. So it was kind of born in that context. The, the more medical. And so in the late 90s, dance movement therapy, this was before, or this was as, this was probably as a lot of the research was beginning, um, you know, Dan Siegel, but especially Dr. Vander and Dr. Porges, the research that they've done, there's Bruce Perry, um, you know, other scientific researchers or clinical scientists who really started to recognize the role of the body in trauma and, you know, what happens with memory, why traumatic memory is as fragmented and sensory motoric and image based as it is. And then questions about, well, what does that mean in terms of treatment and the recognition that, you know, to work with trauma, you have to work with the body, you know, dance therapists, we've known forever that movement was the part, not forever, but since the 40s in the United States, but as long as cultures and, and you know, civilizations and, and ancient places of dance, there's been a recognition that movement is a language. So I think all of that coming together, it was like a parallel journey where the more this research is coming out and the more awareness, there was an endorsement from one of the uh, primary or dominant paradigms in you know the modern society, which is science. I don't necessarily think that we always have to go by what science says, but it seems to be, what people listen to in our society. So I think i I was very mindfully tracking this and connecting with some of the researchers, you know, met some of them, intentionally asked some very, I'd say provocative and direct questions to Stephen Porges, and we've been able we've done a fair amount of collaboration since on developing polyvagal informed dance movement therapy. So there was a parallel process occurring where, Dance movement therapy, which was an you know alternative or not even adjunct, an alternative therapies, one of those artistic things that is no scientific. There's no evidence base for it. Was starting to emerge along with other somatic therapies and arts based therapies as probably the most likely to address the many needs and the very deep roots that trauma takes in the body. You know, as an approach working with survivors of trauma. So, in the early days. I don't remember any specific examples, but feeling a little bit like, wow, I'm treading water. I'm going to have to get up up here. So really educating myself, really reaching out, being very persistent, sometimes to the point of being obnoxious, I'm sure, pushing, insisting on giving presentations at our annual clinical meetings, you know, insisting on introducing my, my colleagues to the work, actually doing experientials with them, sometimes taking some crap from people and just continuing to push you know, one can't take it personally, those kinds of, you know, dismissals. But I do think that the scientists were starting to recognize the power of this work. And I think I've done a fairly reasonable job of bridging those communities with language. And I think some of that is because I don't come from just a straight, expressive background. You know, I have public health, I have international relations, a lot of political science, economics. So, I kind of used a lot of my mainstream education to bridge the gap language-wise to the dominant field, which was science and mainstream psychology as well. And, you know, started to intentionally develop theories that would support the use of body-based and movement-based therapies with political torture.
0: Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear I mean, what an advocate you had to be. and it sounds inspiring to me and I think would be to others that how hard you have to work to really... Well, get, yeah. yeah.
1: And one of the things that I would say, I mean, I have been at conferences where people go, great presentation. Where's the evidence base? Is this evidence base? And what I always invite people to do is say, yeah, the evidence is in your body. Where would you actually be? You know, where do you experience your own life? Where where do your feelings reside? What tells you when something's wrong? And, you know, yeah, but now we can point to a lot of the research that's going on. But, you know, and I also point out that evidence-based clinical trials, I mean, they tend to be focused on very specific symptoms. And what they show is that one approach might be better than another at alleviating or maybe eliminating those symptoms. Nobody's really looked at, you know, globally, 20 years from now, is that person's life meaningful? Have they restored their sense of where they belong in the world, their sense of meaningful connection with others? You know, what are the things that really matter in life? It's important to reduce symptoms of anxiety or PTSD, or, um, but that's part of a much bigger global humanitarian presentation that we all are, so...
0: Mm -hmm. evidence-based
1: is very micro-focused in my opinion.
0: Right. Well, I I wanted to ask you, I wanted people to hear from you why it's important to include the body in trauma work. And I think you just talked a little bit about that. So maybe specify how does the body remember trauma Mm -hmm. and how do you help people access memories from the body safely?
1: I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I'll speak from my clinical experience. And which integrates what I've learned from the research. But my sense is that I don't know if our body actually holds memories. I don't know that there's a place that they're intact in the body, but it's like shards of experience. You know, Antonio Damasio writes about it so beautifully in um, Descartes' error um, when he talks about synthetic markers and how the brain actually, this is, you know, almost catalogs things that happen and, you know, we know the brain is a pattern addict in a sense. I mean, that's a crass way to say it, but the brain will go, mm, you know, feels like this again, this feeling, this smell, this, um, the texture of this, whatever it is, the color, you know, must be this again. So understanding that memories get encoded in the limbic system amygdala and then there's a real affective quality to it, you know, less cognitive, you know, less co- less narrative. I always like to talk about it in terms of dimensionality. When we're in, you know, it would social, a socially engaged state would be the polyvagal. But when we're living, when everything's okay, when we're in our groove, when, you know, we, we we're quite dimensional. You know, we could feel something. We might be able to have an abstract thought. We might um, or think about something abstract. We might be able to appreciate a painting, write down the list of what we need to get at the grocery. The minute danger steps in, we feel fear and that reduces our dimensionality and it's a more of an emotional experience. It's based on fear. Um, there's not as much variability. And so that's where I think some of those shards of memory emerge. Um, hippocampal flooding, cortisol, you know, cortisol flooding the hippocampus in my understanding that, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, but those flashbulb memories start to be those shards of strong images the sensory experience of whatever we're going through. And then in shutdown states, you know, when it's a life threat situation and we completely shut down, um, there can be, you know, no, almost no recollection. I mean, there may be somewhere I've had people say, you know, when they start to come out of those states, they might think they remember something, but people actually, I think, can shut down the behavioral term is dissociate to so the extent that they actually don't remember anything. Um, that's where a lot of survivors of torture get challenged when they're seeking asylum. You know, how can you not remember what happened? Well, of course they don't remember. If you're in a complete shutdown and you're, you know, you're in, in, in you know, heart rate's really dropped and respiration and you're in an, what I consider almost a shocky state. there may be no, no memory. So... Accessing those memories is challenging because a lot of them I always say it's like the body the body is both a minefield and its refuge. So somewhere in the body there are the places that the gardens grow that have really benevolent memories and maybe something positive from childhood, the animals I loved, um, smells, you know, of, of my mother cooking, those things that and some people call those body memories. There's um I can't remember her name, there's a dance therapist and then trauma memories are like those like shards of that that happen in that loss of dimensionality and I'm just focusing on somebody coming towards me or what the room smells like. So I look at it as really building a strong resource base, and I think that's fairly um, I think that's fairly well accepted now, although I think some exposure based therapies kind of want to go right in. Uh, I think it's important to help my clients recognize what's helped them survive, what's kept them strong and then build on that. And as memories pop up, I remember I studied acupuncture years ago, I apprenticed, and I remember the teacher telling me, in Chinese medicine, we work with what's emergent, which what's right there, we might suspect we know what's the root cause of the rash, or the the headaches or whatever it is, but we work through layers. And that's how I approach working with traumatic memories. Something keeps coming up, whether it's a flash of, a, of an image or a person who's haunting somebody's dreams, or they say, I can't forget when I, you know, um, heard the explosion and they have a particular memory. I'll go with what comes up and kind of, it's kind of a weaving. I call it weaving the narrative and I'll slowly, I really work with slowing time down the sensate level, the affective feeling level, you know, cognitive. And it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like putting a puzzle back together. And constantly coming back to present moment. What are you noticing now? What are you feeling now? I think that's really important to integrate it. Mm-hmm. I think that's when it actually becomes a memory. And then the person can say, okay, yeah, that actually, that is a memory. And being able to place it in the past, you know, that's the integration. Mm-hmm. It's no longer hijacking me, that shard of whatever fear that I felt. It's a memory now. So I almost say when it becomes a memory, it's less of an issue. It's still an issue, but it's less of an issue than the shards, the shattered shards that make the memories. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So instead of these shards of memory, you're kind of making some space, separating the memory and almost having it, observing it more than letting it take control over you. Is that what you mean?
1: That's part of it. But I don't think often we don't have the whole memory. It's like we have a strong sense, you know, a smell triggers an image. Or a piece of something that happened. You know, I remember the door opening, but I'm not sure I remember what happened to that. I woke up and, you know, he was on top of me. I mean, those are the kinds of things. Um, I'm Anytime I bend over, I mean, some of my clients will be at work. You know, anytime I'm well, operating heavy machinery and I hear this, suddenly I'm back in Afghanistan being tortured. So it's more pieces, you know, that are related to the senses and how they were either overstimulated or possibly, you know, some understimulated that get held in the body and its images. Often we just remember really, you know, pieces like a like a photographic essay, click, 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 and they start to come together into a narrative. I don't necessarily think the whole narrative will ever be restored. It might, but it might not. Mm hmm. So if it becomes a coherent memory, then we can usually say, hey, it's a memory. It's not happening now. And that's wow. part of healing. That's part of the rest- process.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually, speaking of provocative questions, I'm going to ask some questions on the refugee crisis. I'm curious about what your perspective is on the current refugee crisis and how can dance movement therapy and related practices be further incorporated to influence the current crisis and political climate?
1: You know, I this is going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm not. I was teaching a class in Austin, Texas in February, and one of the things that I integrate into my approach, um, which is called potomitant, it comes from a Creole word that translates literally as center post, um, it's a trauma and resiliency framework, but what it really means is the center of all things. I mean, it's a really deep center. And I really integrate in dance therapy, um, use lots of expression, expressive movement, but there's a lot of structured activities and rest, because rest is really hard for many survivors to find rest states. And so we were. I've been playing with actually honoring where the body is after meals, after lunch, which is it's in a rest, rest and settle state. It's, it's safe dorsal vagal to use polyvagal terminology. And so one of the things I said is I felt that the whole White House should have nap times. <laughs> <laughs> like that's for dance movement therapy. I'd love to see actually some structured activities in the White House. I don't know if it would ever happen where they actually learn to rest and settle. We tend to be more receptive. We tend to listen better we tend to actually be more more aware of our internal states we bet we can better interocept and i always think we're much more truthful we're going to speak the truth with much more accuracy when we speak from an interoceptive or an internal space when we really know what's going on in our body i don't think any of them know what's going on in their bodies mm-hmm. refugee crisis it's interesting because i um a colleague of mine who works at the office of refugee resettlement asked me, you know, would dancing with therapy be helpful for refugees as part of the, you know, orientation when they first arrive or as part of treatment? And I was like, both. Both. Many refugees come from places that people don't go to a psychotherapist for psychotherapy. They might have psychologists and psychiatrists. They might use them for very specific reasons. Often it's very stigmatized. I mean I've had some clients say, you know, if you had to go to one of those doctors, you were crazy. And if you're not crazy, you don't even need to go to them. So there's a real black and white sense of it. Some of them go to traditional healers, shamans, imams, community leaders, um, rabbis, whoever it is. So the context for dealing with troubling, traumatic, stressful times is very different. So what dance movement therapy and all creative arts therapies, to be fair, offers is familiarity. You know, when you think about displacement, I mean, talking about refugees, by nef- definition, we're talking about displacement. They've been displaced from their place in the world, their home, their country, their culture, the place where everybody listens to the call to prayer, or everybody, you know, eats a particular kind of food, where everybody sits down and they don't drive through, you know, McDonald's or whatever it is. So trying, I, you know, talking about restoring a sense of belonging, the familiarity that dance movement therapy or another arts therapy can offer is really, really important and probably not probably underappreciated. And then again, it's what we know when we're working. I mean, I say the body and biology is universal. So culture has a huge impact on how we dress, whether we make eye contact or not, whether I move big or whether I move very quietly, you know, and I think I've challenged dance therapy at, at Many times throughout my career, for making assumptions like, well, you know, some of the theoretical approaches at dance therapy are based in very white Western worlds, so they don't necessarily apply. So we have to, you know, recognize that culture is kind of what dresses us up, but there's a universality to biology, and that has to do with more of the physiological responses. I do a lot of psychoeducation with my clients. This is why your heart races. This is why you wake up at three in the morning. This is, you know, the role of the nervous system and the brain and how how these pieces of memory are stored. And as a movement therapists, you know, we have a strong physical, physiological, biological understanding of the body. That's part of our training more so than other behavioral or mental health professionals. I mean, maybe that's changing. So I think that's part of how it's relevant. But it's also You know, Mary and Chase, who's considered the mother of dance therapy, talked about kinesthetic empathy. She coined that term. She was working with extreme psychosis, people who were locked, literally chained to the back wards of hospitals who nobody else could reach. And she recognized that if they were going like this with their head, maybe knocking it, and she did a similar movement, there would start to be a connection. And then, you know, people would start to actually respond to her. And she was actually able to shift that into some spoken, you know, some dialogue. So when we meet people at the level of the most basic form of communication, that's movement in the body, that's universal. I mean, there's so many ways that I think it can be helpful. And I think our ability to work, do community-based work. I've done a lot of large-scale community work with movement and the arts. And, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, but that's not therapy. So maybe it's not constructed in the way that a usual therapy session is. It's certainly therapeutic. And now I'm kind of challenging. I'm like, yeah, it's not therapy. I'm like, how do you know it's not therapy? Who says what therapy is? Does therapy always have to be 50 minutes in a in, a, in you know four wall outside four walls? I don't know. That's pretty privileged, if you ask me, quite honestly. So you know, you're if people get to do some community work, you know, movement, sculptures, whatever it is. Sure, it's not going to make all the problems go away. It's not going to bring back the people who were killed. It's not going to maybe make my insomnia and my nightmares go away, but maybe if I connect to other people, then I'll have the resources to go forward and, and continue. So, I mean, there's so many ways. That's a very exciting question, actually. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. You talked about community and socially engaging. And I was wondering if you thought, you know, do you think that movement can serve as a bridge between people's fear of change? So for example, refugees entering into someone's country and then being afraid of this new culture entering and a bridge between that and acceptance of the other.
1: These are great questions. (laughs) These are really thoughtful questions. I think so. I don't, I have a feeling I'm going to answer this with, with what I'm thinking now and think of a bunch of things that I wish I said later absolutely i mean fear lives in our body right i mean fear you know it's an emotion but it arises from a physiological process um that's what i was talking about the you know the shoots in the nervous system and the brain so i teach you know complex trauma and this is in all complex trauma literature you know calls for a phasic approach and everybody's first stage or phase of their phasic approach is safety or i like to call it relative safety and safety Stabilization because I think safety truly is relative. In that early part of human, I'm always teaching people look, I have a whole series of structured processes or activities that I've created that up and down and side regulate, you know, maybe shift you from mobilization and fear to more of a play-based mobilization without fear state. Maybe if you're really flat, up regulates you so that you've got a little more energy. Those practices can be really helpful. I mean, those can be bridges to people's literally being able to I mean, if someone can self-regulate their body, if someone can restore a sense of mastery over how they respond to the environment so that they're not reacting, but they're responding to the environment, that's absolutely a bridge. I think a lot of misunderstandings happen when people react. Fear makes us more reactive, less responsive. I've seen so many times where law enforcement, curious about, you know, why somebody... You know, a car is parked or some of my clients have gone through, you know, stop signs or is there, they were learning to get used to driving in this new country, pulled over and they completely freak out because they're terrified because it's somebody in a uniform. And all law enforcement person goes, because, well, gosh, what's going on here? I want to find out. And then, the, you know, it, it degenerates from there. I mean, the situation gets worse. So I think it absolutely could be a bridge. And even the way we respond, you know, I mean, I think about being a refugee, which I've never been speak in another language that maybe the people don't speak in the new country. Maybe I'm dressing differently. You know, when I, when I move towards somebody or approach, maybe I have a question, maybe I'm lost. Um, Maybe I'm interested in something, you know, and people often kind of pull back, you know, I always invite people to think how do you respond when you see somebody in the airport who's carrying the IOM bag or you see somebody wearing a hijab? I mean, how do you respond And if we're more, you know, it doesn't have to be movement, facially expressive. If we express interest and curiosity, enthusiasm with our posture and our voice, that's a huge bridge, huge bridge to understanding.
0: Mm -hmm. Sounds like it's going back Um, to intercepting, starts with interception of your own senses, your own body. Yeah. Sounds like physiological state shifting as well. So bridging your own, your own states. And then that would lead to better bridging of the fear and acceptance of others.
1: Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, that's, you know, interoception. I mean, when I was training against movement therapy, of course, one of my greatest cues to what's going on with my clients is my own body. You know, why am I getting that nervous fluttering in my stomach? Why is my head suddenly hurting or feeling hot? Could be nothing. Could be that, you know, I have a fever, but it could also be that there's something coming up. And I think the more, Pure and truthful, we are about what's going on in our own body. The more we can check in and say, "Hmm, I'm just curious. I'm noticing that I'm feeling this way." You know, what's going on for you, and that, you know, that's also a bridge. Interoception, that self-knowing, I think, allows us to be more mindfully present for our clients, and we're going to probably be more accurate in terms of what we sense about them and how we might, you know, be listening to them and perceiving, perceiving them. So, what we offer might actually be more meaningful to them.
0: Well, there's a lot of similarities going on in social media. It seems to be an unstoppable force that exposes us to so much oppression and trauma occurring all around the world, like through the videos that automatically play when you go on social media, written reports, pictures. How do you suggest that people take care of their bodies in response to all the exposure?
1: I, I stay I'm so not interested in social media. And part of that is generational. I'm old enough that it's, I, you know, I'm trying to like, I feel like I'm trying to climb onto a raft in a, in a, in a really fascinating river sometimes. You know, I can post in Facebook now. I still don't add up. I just learned yesterday how to post a picture in a private message. Oh, <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, I'm, wished there was a way. I, well, I'm going to go back to something I saw in 60 Minutes in April about somebody, I don't remember his name, but he, and I can't remember who interviewed him, but somebody used to work at Apple and left because he actually recognized that they were intentionally creating iPhones and all of the stuff that was on with all the social media and the alerts and stuff to be addictive. Intentionally addictive mm-hmm. social media. So the iPhones, but I think also social media. So I think we've got a huge challenge ahead of us because the lack of dimensionality of advice is no substitute for playing outside, you know, playing in a sandbox, running around in the woods, going on picnics with a family. My sense is that young people are doing less of that and more of technological stuff, and it's not a substitute. And I think it's actually changing our nervous system. I actually proposed a disorder. I'm going to have to think of the name of it. It was after the terrible shooting in Norway, on the island, and I can't remember the shooter's name. And it was, you know, some of the things that happened with Columbine and other things where we recognized that a lot of violence seemed to be driven or informed by people spending a lot of time on computers in these virtual worlds and reading these manifestos, but also playing a lot of the violent games. And I know some people dismiss this, but I think the I think there's when people are young, I mean. 21 right that's when the brain comes fully online what are we doing to the wiring of the brain i think there's i was calling it virtual reality perceptual disorder Mm -hmm. where i actually think some of these acts of violence are arising from a rewiring of a system so that virtual is perceived as real and so what we do online is really real. And so if we go out and we um, shoot up a theater full of people, that's a cross way to say it, it might not really be true. Like it's something that we can actually do and then just go back and play the game again. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Like there's not a sense of kind of a physical finite reality with these virtual worlds. So, I mean, that really concerns me. And I think social media i mean i realize i went off on a big tangent but social media i just want to say to people you know why would you do it more than an hour or two a day or what is it really useful for i've been reading about the generation that you know they just want so many likes that it's creating narcissism Uh, who's it up to i mean a lot of people say well it's up to parents it's up to teachers i mean it's up to all of us i think I think it's just recognizing that social media is really useful for transferring information quite quickly and efficiently. It, you know, the Arab Spring—I mean, it's done some—it's am- supported some amazing shifts on the planet, but it's not a substitute for the real, like, physical, tangible, palpable, sensory world. In fact, it dims the senses. So, mm-hmm. I think people should do what I do, which is like an hour a day on Facebook. I use it to rescue dogs because I love dogs. I use it. I post some things. I'm going to separate my personal from professional page and start posting my trainings on one. And, you know, but it it has a specific place in my life. But If I want to hang out, I'm not going to do it on Google. I'm going to go to like one of our cafes. But yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's some addicting. No, no, I was going to say there's, there's also, I mean, it sounds like what you're suggesting is being intentional about being on social media, but there's also a lot of content of just real images or real videos of things happening, like, you know, evidence of a cop shooting somebody or, you know, just violence that's actually happening. Yeah. And I think that's addicting too. Yeah.
1: And I think it's replayed to be a dick. I mean, I think I don't think it's the image itself, because that's also that could be responsible reporting. Hey, look at, you know, here you know, look at what actually happened here in the past. Before we had the ability to share this information, we had to believe what the newspaper said. Right. Or we had to believe, oh, you know, he was a criminal. That's why he was shot when actually it might have been racism. So we have more access to information. So it's not that it exists or that it's put out there, but maybe it should be be put out there. Maybe it's the responsibility of whoever's putting it out there. Let's put it out. 24 hours it's available. See what really happened, then done. But they keep, you know, it's the kind of, you know, I always feel like it's a machine gun. They keep shooting images. It's the way that it's done, and I think that's intentional and addicting. It's not the piece itself. It can be very informative to see acts of violence. I think more people who live in la la lands or bubbles, I think they need to see what's actually going on in the world. I get really self-righteous with some people. You know, oh, I don't want to see that movie because that happens in other countries. No, you got, your, your taxes are actually paid for it. So maybe you should see that movie about torture. I'm thinking of Zero Dark Thirty. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, makes the United States look bad. You know, I heard it was really rough. It's like, yep, yeah, if you're paying taxes, that's what you're doing. So go see the movie. There's a responsible responsibility seeing some of these images, but it's how I think they're put out there that's
0: right.
1: addictive. Like so
0: watch Zero Dark 30, *The Dark Thirty, but don't watch it. Partition thirty times over. Yeah,
1: right. But you know, we live in a country where, where I mean, we have we certainly have plenty of regulations, but people say, oh, well, that's against my right for free speech or free expression if I can't, you know, put this image on you know, and have it available. And but there's kind of a repetition compulsion that I think it's promoting. I remember I had a client who witnessed a beheading where he came from, and he walked around with it on his phone and just showed it to every provider he met. You know, you've got to see what happened. And it was so clearly he was stuck in that loop, um, understandably. But, you know, my work with him over two years, eventually I got him to delete that. That was one of my treatment goals, mm-hmm. to delete that. You've seen it. I'm willing to watch it once. I'm willing to bear witness to what you experienced. Then I'm done. Now I know. And we had, I mean, that was a whole therapeutic process. It was very powerful, actually. And he finally deleted it. It had served its purpose.
0: Mm. Reminds me of earlier when you talked about bringing back to the present moment.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, all the great spiritual teachers who, you know, people write about or who have written great books. I mean, that's what they say in the present moment. That's all there is. And I don't think they're dismissing the fact that, yeah, we get here through whatever we've been through. So that's woven into what we're experiencing now. But at some point, there's a, well, is, is all that weaving together and, you know, my, the path that I've walked, is that going to be a burden that's going to continue to pull me back? Or is it a reflection? You know, is it more like a mirror and I can look at it and say, yeah, there it is, part of me, but I don't have to carry it.
0: Mm-hmm. Those were all my questions. Thank you okay. so much Thank again. You. It was nice meeting you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Again, this is the 10th episode, so that's really exciting. I'd love to continue having your support and I'm um, open to your ideas of what you would like to continue listening about. So please visit the Facebook page, Mind Your Body, A Dance Movement Therapy Perspective. Thanks again. Bye-bye.